Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony's been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben, and this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. Tonight's guest is Michael E. Buteri, who is the mostly known as the former police chief of the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Tony. Nice to see you. Uh, likewise. So, Michael, I understand you retired from the police department, and you're now working for a company called QRT, which, um, what does that stand for? Actually, the company is Operation to Save Lives and QRT National. It's O2SL and QRT. QRT stands for Quick Response Team. Oh, I see. Okay. So before we get into what you're currently doing, I'd like to go over your history a little bit. Sure. You were on the Plymouth Police Department for how many years? 36 years. Wow. So you started off like everybody else as a... As, uh, I did. I started off as a patrolman back in 1985, and then I've been with Plymouth uh, all the way until June of 2021, and I left there as the chief of police. And how many years were you the chief? I was the chief for almost uh, right around 13 years. So a little bit of history of the town of Plymouth. When did you start seeing overdoses showing up and people dying in, in the town? Sure. Yeah. Plymouth, we started seeing somewhere around 2014 maybe 13, 14, in that area, we noticed it just in Plymouth alone, we saw our numbers really skyrocket when it came to incidents involving overdoses um, and as well as overdose deaths, where we might have years prior during my career, we would see maybe an overdose death a year. You might see two. We went to seeing somewhere around 15 up to 20 uh, as things went on, and overdoses themselves went up to right around 200 just for the town of Plymouth. And we knew that was happening throughout the country. So you were, um, when you first started seeing an over overdoses, I think you had one type of um, approach or attitude towards people who who were using drugs. And then as you evolved, I think you understood the drug a little bit better. And tell me how that transition went. Yeah, I can tell you that I, I think traditional law enforcement and, and traditional policing looked at drug use as a choice. And I, I believe that the training in law enforcement for many years was, and I know for a fact it was, that, you know, people chose to do that. And if they chose risky behavior, then whatever happened, happened. And police officers were really just not tolerant of it. And we learned over time, and I do remember even when I learned as the chief, um, we learned over time that it's a disease and it's something that has to be treated. Uh, and really, it's not something law enforcement should be locking people up for. It's really something we should be deflecting them to treatment programs and getting them help. You know, when you really look at the problem, it could be any one of us. I have four children myself, and I, I know that um, at one point after we started our program, we were going to uh, vigils of people had passed that had passed away and in, in during that year and i remember just kind of a light going on listening to people talking about their loved ones who had an accident motor vehicle accident with serious injury or a sports accident and had to get on some type of opiate opioid medication and, and ended up being addicted and I realized that could be me it could be my son my daughter very easily they had sports injuries they had treatment and once you realize that somewhere around 80% of the, of the people using using illicit or, or, or prescription medication really didn't choose to do it, um, you see it in a whole different light. And we started in Plymouth. We, did, we, we put on back in 2014 a, a street crimes unit of seven or eight offices that was specifically, they were meant to do, to be out there and deal with quality of life issues, which this is one. And they evolved into being uh, a team of offices that in, would, would um, respond to overdoses the next day through our outreach program in plain clothes with an unmarked vehicle and a clinician or a recovery coach to provide services and try to connect these people to services and, or resources. 
So if you knew somebody had overdosed and survived, what you're saying is the next day or somewhere recent, right after that, you would show up in an unmarked car and try to encourage them to get into rehab or to- Well, the way the, the, way the program worked was you would, um, we like to look at policing. Uh, we see policing as having a front row seat to the problem. And I, I say that because we respond to all of these calls. And as I mentioned, you know, traditional policing would be you try to make things better when you get there and then you wait for another call. We realized since we had this front row seat, we were missing an opportunity to to provide some intervention. And, and, and not that we could provide it as law enforcement, but we could be that conduit that connect them to services. So the way the program uh, developed was if you overdosed um, and it started in Plymouth, but it quickly evolved to the entire county. We involved Sheriff McDonald and District Attorney Tim, District Attorney Tim Cruz, um, and then uh, we put together a county model because we really learned early on, Tony, that if you overdosed in my community in Plymouth, you could live in another community, and those people would fall through the through the gap or through the cracks. We didn't want that. Um, I did learn early on after, so I say around 2015, uh, that a, well, a fellow chief in Plymouth County, Chief Scott Allen, was in East Bridgewater at the time, and he was providing uh, a different resource. He had drop-in centers that he would do weekly, and sometimes sometimes twice a week. And, it, and he had a drop-in center when the concept there, Tony, was that he would bring together a dozen or more um, you know, clinicians, agencies, stakeholders, research pe people that want to provide assistance to this uh, this problem, and then people could come there. They'd have a meal, and they could just connect to services. They could get Narcan. Um, they could learn how to use it, and it could be disseminated. So, I talked. I talked to him about really taking my program, which was a response. If you overdosed, and we went there, we would go the next day to connect you to care and connect the two countywide. And then through that countywide task force run through the DA and the, and the sheriff, um, we were able to collaborate with all these agencies and we learned what would be the best response for us. Uh, what we really learned from the subject matter experts at that table were a, an, a response within say 24 to 48 hours is best, best, most likely to succeed on an intervention and we realized that stigma was so strong that a lot of people really had a hard time coming forward. They didn't know where to go for help. Family members and loved ones didn't know where to go to help. The stigma was so strong. People were embarrassed uh, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be because it is a sickness. It's an illness that they should really be seeking help for their loved ones. And we realized our program would have to go to locate them to help with the stigma unmarked vehicles, plain closed, and within a time frame. So that was the, the Plymouth County outreach. That was the beginning of Plymouth County outreach back in 2016-ish. Did you ever find that somebody was out of control and that as a police officer, were you able to section some of these guys or ladies? Yeah, so the way the way that worked, a, a uh, you could do that. You could petition the court. Uh, and have them, you know, brought in against their will and get treatment. We know that's not really the most successful way to do it. But to your point, Tony, at a certain point, um, if you can't get them to come in on their own and get to the point where they are willing to accept some type of treatment, that was a that was an option for us. We didn't do it um, too often. It was not something we wanted to just we didn't feel like that was solving a problem, but it was an interim. Uh, maybe get someone off the street and they were safe for a, a night or two or whatever, but it wasn't going to be able to really solve the problem in, in the long term, if you will. So it was a tool that we had on our tool belt, um, but we didn't utilize it as much because we really didn't feel we'd, the success would be there if you force people to treatment. Uh, we did work a lot with the drug court in Plymouth um, and Judge John Julian uh, ran that court years ago. I, I believe he's still there today. And we had a really good relationship and collaboration with them so we could connect people to care that way and um, and really be able to, to, to provide them with whatever the best services would be for them individually at that time. Yeah, we talked to uh, Sheriff McDermott from Norfolk County, and he told us that 80% of the inmates are 
addicted to some form of drug. Really? 80%, which we thought was pretty high, yeah. but that's yeah. that was the reality. So, I mean, and, and we talked to Judge Mathis last week from Taunton. Okay. And the, he does the drug court there, and he's whole goal is to keep people from being incarcerated as a prisoner, you know, as a, like a convict, as opposed to working, working with that person and trying to keep them out of the system. So they have a better chance of um, being good citizens and long-term recovery. Yeah. And, and I think Plymouth was one of the first, had the first drug court, didn't they? Weren't they one of the first ones? Yeah. under judge um, Rosemary Minahan actually years ago started the one in Plymouth. I believe she was very successful in Plymouth, Judge John Julian, like I say, does some work in Barnstable County as well as Plymouth County. And I do think Plymouth was among the forefront as far as having that drug court there. Um, and, and that collaboration and relationship, really, everything that we talk about here in the Plymouth County outreach model, this outreach team model, uh, is about forming strong partnerships. And through those partnerships, again, forming strong relationships. So you can really pick up a phone and connect someone to services and uh, you know, you've heard it said by law enforcement, I'm sure many times, this isn't something we can arrest our way out of. You know, we're not going to arrest our way out of solving this problem in any way. We really need to step back and connect people to services. So that's really where our program ended up at that point. Um, we ended up with all 27 towns, one of which is the city of Brockton. So one city and 26 towns, all all uh, signing an MOU um, for the Plymouth County Outreach Program. And what that meant was if you overdosed, Anywhere in the county, um, you would within a day or two, hopefully receive some type of follow up. And our numbers were very, very engaging and were very successful with locating people. And we were able to actually, and I still think the numbers are still strong in Plymouth County. I'm still involved on the advisory board where, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the time we're, we're connecting people to care. Um, you know, we know early on we, we thought and I remember discussing, you know, people will probably just turn us away. But we thought, you know, if half the time they turn us away, then half the time we get in and we and we, and we make a difference. You know, we, we're able, we're at least able to leave brochures behind to help people, you know, understand where the resources are, are and how to how to connect to them. Uh, but we didn't find that because the stigma is so strong. We found that everyone will let us in. We very, very seldom, if ever, were turned away uh, because we're bringing these resources to their door, into their kitchen, in their living room, in a comfortable environment. And they really need want to learn and they want help and they want direction. Now, we need to make sure we'll meet them where they're at. And when they're ready, they're ready. But this concept that people involved in substance use disorder um, don't want help is really wrong. I mean, they, these people want assistance uh, and we just need to be there to, to provide that connection to them. So that's what we learned during that program. It's very hard to... Um to break the, break the habit with opioids because you get dope sick. And that's something we've talked about a lot in them. And they're afraid to be dope sick because the only way to stop being dope sick is to go back on the drug, you know, and it's, so we definitely understand. And that's why, um, how do you feel about what they call Matt medically assisted treatment? Yeah. So we, that that's you know, a, a good yeah, I mean, we look at in Plymouth County Art, which we look at all the pathways, all the different pathways that would assess some, assist someone. And we're open to all of those. Uh, I still am today, even with the work I'm doing today, uh, medically assisted treatment, uh, whatever works for the person. And medically assisted treatment is, is something that's viable. Um, there are different types. There's Suboxone and there are different types of, of, uh, of medically assisted treatment out there. And it's regulated through through medical doctors and those type of things. So if it can have if if it can help someone to live a normal life, uh, you know, work and uh, and and spend time with their family and get through life, then whatever whatever works, we support. Uh, is the 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 most the latest kind of thing out there is called Medicine for Opiate Use Disorder (MOUD), uh, which is you know very similar to MAT, but MOUD is just all the the spectrum of different medicines that are out there that can assist. So you know we 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 in the Plymouth County Outreach, and I, I I really can't speak for them specifically, although I am still on the advisory board. You know we feel whatever treatment is available and whatever treatment works for that individual person is is what we want to connect them to. So we connect to all all resources. Okay, so in Plymouth. 
a few weeks back, we interviewed Bob Hollis. And yeah, um, no, Bob very is, well. Is, yeah, is his place the one of the places where you would call it like an intervention center, where people can go in and talk? Yeah, is Bob that one runs of the a recovery uh, recovery center there, uh, and he's been doing that for a few years after the, the tragic loss of his son. And he is just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. He's done so much work there, and he's built that up through grants and through different support through the state. Uh, and he's got a wonderful program there where people in recovery can go, people that are struggling with recovery can go, and he connects them to services as well. Um, he's, he's really more of a, a walk-in center, and you know he does, I'm sure, get referrals. The Plymouth County Outreach Program is an active outreach model where someone overdoses, and as a result of that overdose, there's a connection to services as far as law enforcement who really is takes really takes the lead in the Plymouth County outreach model because they all the referrals come through law enforcement. And then the partners at the hospitals and the partners that are there to assist and provide treatment all uh, are all, all stand ready to do that once that, that intervention occurs. So Bob runs a phenomenal program where, where he's at in Plymouth and he's done really, really well with it. That's good to hear. Um, so let's move on. Now you've retired from the police force and now you work for QRT National. Uh, can, can you give us an idea? What is that all about? And, and how, did it, how did it come about? How did you guys start this company? So it's, a, it's actually Operation to Save Lives and QRT National is a really a company under our, our, our parent company is Homeland Security Solutions Incorporated, HSSI Incorporated. So Homeland Security Solutions is a company that I've been involved with uh, for a few years prior to my retirement. Um, and they work on a lot of um, Department of Defense contracts and they have contracts throughout the country. Um, and I had been uh, working with them uh, as a, a member of their board of directors. Uh, and Chief Scott Allen, um, who I mentioned earlier from East Bridgewater, his program and, and, and the one we did in Plymouth, we merged together and he and I ran that Plymouth County Outreach in the beginning with a Northern group in the County and a Southern group. And then we merged them both together. And um, uh, he and I um, talked to Homeland Security Solutions and presented a, uh, uh, an idea to really take this, to really take, take this and spread it throughout the country. The Plymouth County outreach model is one of a handful that are, has been chosen as a mentor site and a mentor program model uh, by the uh, Bureau of Justice Administration, BJA. Um, the QRT, Quick Response Team, is a second one of those mentor sites that uh, was chosen from BJA to be one of the models that they would promote. So we thought we, we should promote this model throughout the country. Um, and Chief Allen retired a little about a year prior to me, a little over a year. And then I followed him in June of 2021 um, Homeland Security Solutions Incorporated supported this, um, and we're now working in uh, 16, 16 or 17 states right now, and we've kind of evolved to provide other trainings as well, but our, our, main, uh, our main purpose in the beginning was substance use disorder, different, the different pathways to connect people to care, uh, and educating and not and really knocking down barriers between public health and law enforcement because we know those barriers really have uh, you know we've really gotten in the way and been a real challenge to move forward with uh, with programs that involve both law enforcement and uh, public health officials and people working in behavioral health. So um, so the HSSI, decided to support us and we've been working under them uh, our branch under hssi we're known as o2sl and qrt national when scott and i began working there uh we um we quickly learned what you know what else was going on throughout the country and we found uh, qrt is a program quick response team that is began out in cincinnati ohio and we found our third partner uh, retired chief and uh administrator, town administrator, Dan Malloy. And Dan was doing phenomenal things with quick response teams out in Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, and all in that area. Uh, and we, we quickly realized when, uh, after speaking with Dan that, you know, all three of us were really, we were talking the same language. So we decided to really merge together 
and become one unit. So that's where we get the name O2SL and QIT National. Uh, we brought we brought Dan on and worked. We we didn't bring him on, but we worked together with him and we merged our companies. And now we're uh, we're kind of spreading that word throughout throughout the country. That's tell us how it actually works. Like let's say you go into a new state like that has never done this before. And, so, and and I guess the biggest question is how do you support yourselves? Is this a this is not a nonprofit, is it? Uh, no, Homeland Security Solutions is not a nonprofit. You know, we work through them, uh, and you know they have uh, all the services that we need. We we are traditionally paid through grant funding. A lot of times, uh, opioid response um, award funds are starting to come out. People are using those agencies are using those type of things. What we do is we have a couple of different products. One of our products is called the PMAT, which is the uh, program management adherence tool. In some ways, it's an assessment of where your community's at because a lot of communities are doing great things already. We we never come in and say, hey, here we are from Massachusetts and Ohio. We know what's best. We know what's right. Here's what you do. We want to learn what they're doing at the time. So we'll do this PMAT uh, you know, throughout their regions and areas. And it gives us an idea where they are with partnerships and budgeting and where there are with sustainability and, and and all of that, get a good idea of where their program's at so we can help them move forward. And then we'll provide those trainings that are needed to move forward. Um, one of the other, uh, one of the other things that we offer is called a situation table. It could also be known as the Chelsea Hub. Chelsea, Massachusetts was, was the first agency in the United States to actually bring the hub forward. And what the hub, what the situation table is, is a, uh, it's really a risk-based model uh, where you identify the risks that are out there with individuals or families and then provide them resources. So really, if you look at that, we'll provide that um, anywhere in the country. We have an agreement and we have a partnership, a strong partnership with Global Network for Community Safety out of Canada, which is where this began several years ago. And we work closely with them and we are their training arm really for the United States. So really what the situation table is, 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 is a, an outreach program, really 2.0 version of, of our Plymouth County outreach program. In Plymouth County, uh, the program worked that you would have to overdose for us to really know you, you needed help, right? So if someone overdosed and uh, hopefully they survived, we could provide some type of connection to care. Um, really, it would be a better program would be somewhere, something that we could be preventive and we could be predictive, right? We could predict that you need help before right. you overdose. So what the situation table does is exactly that. Now, early, after we started the program in Plymouth County, we did start, we meaning other fellow chiefs and, and, and ranking officers throughout the county, we started getting phone calls from family members who said, look, my son or daughter will overdose eventually. Do I have to wait for them to overdose for you to step up and help them connect them with services? And we said, no, absolutely not. So we would we created a new um, category called subject at risk, and we started tracking those. And we, ought, we, treat, we treated them as well, the same as if they overdosed and brought them services. The situation table does just that. And what it does is it, it brings together all the stakeholders, all the, the we, we, what we call a system leaders group, who are the champions in, the, in your area? Uh, could it be law enforcement, fire, EMS? It could be the public health department. It could be all, all of them. Uh, you know, who, who are these, who, who do we identify and who should we have at the table where we can refer people and families forward that are what we call acutely elevated risk? What that means is acutely elevated risk means that we know a crisis will occur. We know that. It's, we can predict that because of all the risk factors that the family or the individual have. And it's a specific system, and it, it really is unique in a lot of ways. Uh, and what you do is you would refer, an agency would refer someone or a family forward that they thought was at acutely elevated risk. We had so, we have several categories, 27 risk factor categories and over hundred risk factors themselves within that. And if, if a family or a person had so many of these risk factors, it would be really difficult, if not impossible for them to manage and navigate several different service sectors to get help. Um, 
So we want to provide that help and that those wraparound services before some of the crisis occurs. So without getting too deep into what a situation table does, it has four different filters. The first filter is an agency bringing forward someone or a family that they feel is at acutely elevated risk and presenting it to the table of professionals that you've put together. The table of professionals would make a decision based on the information they were given if the family or individual is at acutely elevated risk. Now, this is all de-identified information. We're not sharing any information, really individual information. It's all de-identified. It would look something like a 20 to 30-year-old female involved in um, criminology, uh, drug use, and we would list all these risk factors. If everyone at the table had full consensus that this person or family is at acutely elevated risk, the process goes on through four filters, and it really just ends with a team that is put together of different agencies to go and locate the family or the individual and provide or at least offer services for them specific to their needs. And the goal would be to lower their risk. So they're at less risk. We're not, we don't, we know we're not going to solve everyone's problems, but um, so situation table is something that we do throughout the country. Uh, We've done it many times. We're in several States doing that right now. Uh, So those are the kind of the resources that, that we bring forward. We have a, um, a software platform where you can collect this data. Cause I think one thing we know in, uh, not just policing, but I think in, in in everything that we do, data is important, right? It's important to track what you do. It's important to uh, to track information and and be able to really show that these situate that the way these platforms work is helpful and it's really proof of concept, if you will. And you also need to collect data if you if you want to apply for grants and there's specific reporting that you have to do when you apply and you receive specific grants. So we have a software platform that will do all that. We'll collect that information in real time. We'll provide reports um, for um, several different areas to include all the areas that grants request or not request, but require. So we, you know, we have that platform as well. And, and we've gone out uh, through our PMATs and our assessment basically and provided, you know, whatever trainings needed, we put together a, a team of professionals and we have around 25 subject matter experts in all fields, behavioral health, social work, uh, law enforcement, fire, EMS, and we'll put together the right team that you need to come forward with the right experience uh, with whatever the needs are of that community. Uh, so that's that's really, uh, those are the, the, the couple of main things that we do at O2SL and QIT National. So um, when you find a family that needs services, if they don't have insurance, how do we cover that? You know what I mean? That seems to me that the person who is heavily addicted probably doesn't have health insurance. You know, yes. Yeah, so I mean, part of the whole, when you when you put together your, your partners and your collaborators and you really look at those relationships, there are agencies that come forward that would specifically be able to handle things without insurance. So part of your building of that team is to include those type of agencies. Um, you, you'd be surprised a lot of agencies will, will do will do a limited amount of services uh, without insurance, but there are some agencies that are built to do that. So uh, I think the key is to really identify those and have a team of people that are ready to help uh, in that way. So that is not as big an obstacle as I think it sounds like or people believe. Um, because there are a lot of resources out there. And we like to, really, we like to find people. And I, I, I think a lot of times we locate individuals and families that have benefits that they don't realize they have. For instance, veterans. There are veterans that are homeless and they have, they have benefits that they don't even exercise or even, I don't even know that they have, you know? So when we, when we start to plug people into this, these, these uh, resources, we're able to, in a lot of times, locate benefits they have that they just haven't exercised yet. Yeah, speaking of veterans, we know that the suicide rate on veterans is, it's down from 21 a day to 17 a day, yeah. but it's still outrageous. Um, how do you feel that there's a lot of that is to do with substance use disorder at the same time? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we never believe that substance use disorder is really a standalone. We always find there are other 
situations, mental health, behavioral health, um, you know, alcohol. There are a lot of other things that, that we typically see. And that's why when we talk about that situation table, you're able to help people. One of the one of the reasons it works and one of the really one of the mandatory pieces of that is that it crosses several service sectors, these risk factors, whereas it's not just one risk that you can go to one agency and you can you you can you can receive assistance when it crosses several service sectors. So we do think there's a lot of dual diagnosis out there and there were a lot of mental health calls for service. We know law enforcement are getting a lot of calls for service that are mental health related. We've seen what's happened throughout the country with that. Um, and, and we know that there's, uh, they're, they're, they're starting to really do um, a lot more with community engagement encounters and, and the community, community itself really getting more involved uh, but I think your point is is correct. I mean, substance use disorder very seldom is a standalone issue with with an individual. There are usually other factors involved, and that's why it's important to really find people, identify what you know really what their risks are, and try to connect them to services really before that crisis occurs. And now you you said that you're working with the Canadian people. Um, in Canada, what do you feel they do? Are they they that's any that's working better than what we're doing in our country? Well, I mean, I mentioned Canada because Global Network, um, Global Network for Community Safety is from uh, Canada. That's where they began this program. I was talking about the Situation Table program, and they've been doing it for a long time, uh, for a dozen years or so, back to 2011. Um, and they have over 125 of these tables and they've, they've serviced thousands of people and connected thousands of people to care. So I think that they're, they, I'm not sure what they're doing better right now, but I, I think they started it a lot sooner than we did. And they realized that this is the type of system you need, this predictive piece where you need to really, uh, you know, identify that a crisis will happen and intervene before it happens. You know, police officers and law enforcement are very good at, responding to a situation that occurred, maybe working hard to make it better and leaving it better than it was. But we're not, we've never been really good at predicting it or, or providing follow-up afterwards. I mean, we would typically as law enforcement go to a call for service and really, um, really just kind of leave and wait for another call. We would never really attempt to make that connection to care. We call this smart policing because the police officers are dealing with the same families, the same locations, the same individuals day in and day out, sometimes more than once or twice a day. When the better move would be, it would be a lot smarter to connect them to services and get them the help they need. And that would free officers up to do other things as well. So there are so many pluses in this uh, this predictive model. Uh, obviously, it would lessen the impact on hospitals and emergency rooms and all of that. So I know a lot of people are looking at it for that reason throughout the country. I think that's a terrific program. Um, the other thing in Canada, they have safe injection houses, and I know in I Vancouver, in Vancouver, it, it it kept the overdoses off the street. And um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so safe injection sites—they were they were in the forefront of that as well. You're starting to see those. Um, obviously, the criticism is that people are being allowed to use illicit drugs. But really, it's a harm reduction move, right? A harm reduction initiative. And really what harm reduction is, is anything that will keep people alive, right? So if you look at it through that lens, then it's positive. You know, it's going to keep them alive, just like fentanyl test strips, where people can test the drug before they use it, see if there's fentanyl in it. I mean, we know fentanyl is in almost everything now. There really isn't really much heroin left. It's really all fentanyl. But if you're taking a drug like cocaine or, you know, or smoking marijuana, uh, and you're able to use a fentanyl test strip to see that there's no fentanyl in it, there's a value there. These are all tools for harm reduction, really to keep people alive. So, uh, you know, any, you know, really anything that, anything that helps people live uh, so they can get to recovery, um, you know, is something that you really, you really need to support in, in my mind. But I know there's a lot of criticism about safe injection sites and those type of things. I know in Canada, they also, in Vancouver, I believe, have doctors there that will prescribe um, uh, fentanyl to people that are addicted. So they know the dosage and they know the, the what the drug is and they know they're not in danger of, of, of overdosing as much. Uh, and obviously the 
safe ejection sites have medical people and medical staff on hand. So if anything happens there, and I think there's statistics are no one's really overdosed and died there uh, because of that, but uh, it's a safe place to go. So I would just put it under harm reduction, you know, Narcan's harm reduction. Um, everything that you do to keep people alive is harm reduction. Uh, and some people look at Narcan as an enabling drug and say, you know, it's um, it, it it makes people feel safe when using it because they have the reverse drug of Narcan to to come back. So there's a lot of controversy about it. I like I like to put it under harm reduction. And if there's a tool out there that'll keep people alive, if it was my loved one, I'd want to use whatever tool would keep them alive until they got to full recovery, hopefully. So, yeah, that's that's very key. I also hear in some states now that the uh, through the MAT program that they're going to allow some drug stores, to, the pharmacists to actually do a prescription for Suboxone or Buprofamine and work with the doctor, but so that the person doesn't have to go to a doctor all the time, they can just get the prescription filled by request. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's one of the most difficult things. Working yeah. out, or, do you know anything about that? I just hear that it's something that's coming out. I haven't yeah, heard before that. Them. Um, it's difficult. I mean, the, you know, you obviously when you when you're on some type of uh, medically assisted treatment, there's a specific time you have to go in. You have to take the drug there with the doctor, and it's all scheduled. And there's a certain time during your treatment that you might be allowed to take something home for more than a day or a couple of days and then come back and you get specific dosage. But uh, I did hear that. I haven't heard anything more than what you just said, just that they're looking at having um, the ability to have a prescription and then manage it yourself at home. So I'm, I'm sure that's on the forefront, but I don't know a lot more about that right now. So um, the other day I read in a newspaper article that was on USA Today uh, written by a doctor, and his whole thing was, um, you know, he thinks that by not giving people prescriptions for opioids, that it's that it's a bad thing. He thinks that that we over over uh, over exceeded our plans. In other words, by only giving somebody two or three days worth and so forth. And it sounded like something written by a, a doctor who was paid by the pharmaceutical industry. Where do, where do you fall in on that? Do you, you know, like, um, I, I, because of my situation with Adam and I didn't want any opioids when I had back surgery just recently. Yeah. And I survived, you know, I yeah. sucked up the pain, but where, yeah. do, where do you feel that hospitals are doing with, with uh, opioids now and prescriptions and not prescriptions? Well, no, I think they're doing a lot better. I mean, we all know the history is that there was overprescribing forever, and and the over overprescribing, if you read about it, really was the the fact that doctors, uh, their connection to insurance companies was they had to manage the pain, right? And I think that was the criteria that had to be done. Uh, insurance companies mandated it years ago, and in order to manage the pain, the way they they did it was to overprescribe. So you have someone that goes in, and we all had our kids have. Uh, you know, dental work done, or I have myself, and you leave with 30, you know, uh, 30 opiate Percocets. pills, Percocets, yeah. or something like that, or, you know, oxycodone or something like that, and um, probably don't take any, and you maybe take one the first day or two. So that old prescribing uh, just left all this, these drugs out on the street. Uh, now, to combat that, I know in Plymouth County, and probably throughout the country now, but in Plymouth County, every police department and I think that was it was fueled by the district attorney's office and probably with assistance from the sheriff. But the district attorney had put a drop box, meta, uh, medical drop box in every police station so people could come in 24-7 and just drop those drugs in there. So, you know, your mom and your dad pass away and you have all kinds of medicines that are there. You, you could get rid of them in a safe manner. But the overprescribing, I mean... I, uh, They've come a long way with that. Um, I mean, years ago, you could go to one one pharmacy and then go to another pharmacy or go to a hospital and get a prescription. And uh, the connection wasn't there, but I think they've really come a long way with that. Uh, it, it's difficult, if not impossible, to really, um, you know, take one prescription in one place and go to another and not to have them know it within their database. So they've made great strides. And I think they've made great strides in in, in lessen, lessening the uh, prescription medicine numbers and giving people a few days at a time. So, yeah, I, it sounds like whoever whoever you were you're referring to is really more prone towards 
you know, prescribing more medicine, which I don't really, I don't know how anyone could come up with an argument to support that. I mean, to me, if you had medicine that would cover you for a couple of days, look, there's times you need this type of medicine, you know, for pain and it, it should be regulated. But if you got a few days and you needed more, you could come back and get a few more if you needed it, I would say. But to prescribe 30 to 60 pills or 30 to 60 days of pills to me is, is crazy. Oh, I definitely agree with you on that one. Um, so how is the demand for QRT nationally now? Are you are you guys working straight out? You've got so much to do now that you that Yeah, we're doing pretty to... well. I mean we're we're uh, we work closely. We have a lot of different partners. We work with uh uh PARI, which is called which is the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. PARI is a national agency. Chief Scott Allen and I sat on their uh, advisory council uh, years prior before we retired. Uh, they're a phenomenal, phenomenal program. Really, their goal is is to spread throughout the country um, these different pathways of pre-arrest diversion and deflection. So you're able to deflect people away from criminal justice. Uh, and they do that throughout the country. They have somewhere around 700 police departments that, that are uh, members of their group. Uh, we do a lot of training through them. Um, they line us up with a lot of different uh, opportunities that they see because they're out there doing that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, we're uh, we have, uh, you know, agreements and, like I say, partnerships with a lot of different agencies. So uh, I'm gonna ask national agency is PTAC, the police treatment and community and collaboration. Again, another uh, national agency that promotes uh, all these different deflection pathways um, uh, throughout the country. So I'm going to ask you to put your police hat back on for a second. Okay. If you, were, if you were in charge of Homeland Security, which I believe is a Homeland Security problem, how would you deal with the, what do you think is the best way for us to deal with the fentanyl that's coming into the country? <clears throat> you know, there's, there's all this controversy about how does it cross the border? How does it get here from China? You know, what what, what would you do and how would you organize it? Yeah, that's a big question you got there, Tony. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> I know one. It. If I had that but answer, I, I would probably wouldn't be sitting here. But um, I, I think that the, the I think the government's really doing a good job focusing on it. Um, uh, when you really talk to the people, uh, at, you know, at the border or from what I've seen and people I've talked to, uh, even through even through the mail, there's a lot of drugs that go through the U.S. postal. Uh, and they catch a very small, small percentage of it, and they know that. Uh, I've heard them say, and I, I, I can't really quote exact, but some postal security people that are pretty high-ranking have done some some different presentations that I've been at, and they talk about getting large, you know, stopping and collecting large amounts of, of uh, illicit drugs going through the mail, and then they end by saying, we think that's only 3% of what's going through. So they think they're missing upper 90% of what goes through. So um, I really don't have a better answer for you than that. I think they realize, I, I guess the point is they realize it's happening. So that's the first step, but um, you can't, can't really come up with a quick solution to it, except for just, you know, staying with it, you know? Yeah, well, they, <clears throat> it wouldn't do anything if we didn't have customers here. They would nobody to buy it, you know. But if yep. people are out there buying it, that's that's the biggest part of the problem is how do we stop the cartel from having customers? Yeah. And know? and when you look at that, I mean, we we in the in 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 the really the outreach outreach world, right? The pre-arrest diversion deflection world, we realize that, and we are looking to help the people that are users, but we have no tolerance for the dealers. I mean. None of the programs I talk about would give any breaks to dealers. I mean, even uh, in, in our county, um, we never connected the two. Like we would never go to an outreach and try to put together a case because we wanted them to know we were there for the right reasons. But um, whenever we uh, whenever we could, our goal was always to stop that hap from happening as well. But, you know, as you know, there's, al there's always an argument or a discussion about um, – you know, when you do when you do find people that are dealing drugs, you know, what's the penalty in court? Do they go to jail? Do they not? What's it take to go to jail? Uh, my experience is that even people selling drugs, they'd have to do it several times before they really end up doing time in jail. So that might be a place to start. 
It might be a place to start by lowering the trafficking numbers as far as how much weight you need for fentanyl and how, which they did recently, um, or, or lower you know the amount you need uh, to possess to be charged with a ser more serious crime and do more jail time. So I think legislatively those things all should be looked at to increase the penalty once people decide to 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 do that because if the penalty's light, it's worth the risk because they're making so much money and the payment is less if they get caught. They might not even go to jail yet. They might get a second or third chance. So I think that's an area to look at, Tony. I don't think it's a, a, a full, clear answer, but it's an area to look at. I personally think that if they're selling drugs laced with fentanyl or artificial pills that have got fentanyl in it to make it look like Oxycontin or Oxycodone, yeah. I think the penalty should be pretty harsh. And, you know, we know they're pressing pills now. They're pressing pills that look like uh, uh, prescription medicine. Uh, we know all that's happening. I, I totally agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, there have been starting to, and actually a few years back before I retired, um, Plymouth County, I think, prosecuted the first um, case of charging someone with homicide involved in deal in selling drugs to someone who overdosed and died. So I know there's a lot of work really going towards prosecuting those cases, which is important. I think that will come, will go a long way. So someone selling drugs that has fentanyl in it and someone dies, they can be held responsible for that death. I know that's a difficult prosecution because you have to really specifically identify through, you know, medical records and toxicology that it was the specific drug that did it. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but they are starting to do that and they're starting to prosecute those cases. So I think that that can only help in the long run, you know? Yeah. If the word is out there that they're definitely potentially going to be charged with homicide. I, yeah. I think that that would definitely uh, be yeah, a, don't you? a factor in making somebody think twice before they start doing that, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. I, I, I always hear a lot of people saying, why do they, why would anybody put fentanyl in the drugs because you're killing your own customers? But I think the reality of that is that, um, it, that not that many die from it right away. You know, it's 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 the ones that do are the ones that have been that maybe have been sober for a year and then they come back or two years and they come back and the body can't handle it. You know, but yeah, you see a lot of abuses. Yeah. We see a lot of that, and uh, you know when. And, and actually, that's one of the one of the reasons that reentry from uh, from prison or from jail, the reentry uh, point is a real critical point of intervention for people because they're coming back out and they're going to be, you know, hopefully not, but maybe seeing the same people they did before, and they're at high risk to overdose and maybe die because of their uh, they haven't been having the drug for a while. So, I mean, that's that's definitely a piece you have to look at. You know, I totally agree. They need to be seriously warned about the, the, the risk that coming out of prison that, you know, as you said, going back to the their usual drug dealer, they should definitely know the consequences are going to be potentially severe. And yeah. that's yeah, that, that'll be their last breath. And we so, look at that as part of that uh, that PMED I was talking about is the relationship with the jails or, or, the, or the prisons on release. Do you have involvement there? I know Plymouth County. Uh, just received uh, their second, um, I think it was a one point, might have been a $1.6 million grant for three years, but it was at least 1.2. It was, it was a big grant. And with that, they have hired, um, I, I think they already have uh, someone to uh, interact with uh, Plymouth County Jail through Sheriff McDonald. So at that point of reentry, there's a lot more information that's shared. Uh, even if it's just pamphlets and those type of things, there could be an interview it could be connection to resources, maybe connection to MAT, if that's what is needed, or MOUD. Uh, but just that interaction from the outreach team to engage those people early on and let them know that they're entering a real dangerous time frame and a critical point for intervention so we can offer those resources and connect them to care. So that's a good point. That's good. Um, so before we run out of time, I just wanted to ask you, how does somebody get a hold of you? Well, yeah, you know, I guess I would just say that um, they can go to our website, which is o2sl.com. Uh, everything's on there. You'll be able to see all of the mentors we have and the, all of the different subject matter experts we have on there. And uh, that'll give you a good idea of what we do. Um, I, I, and that's, I a, that's 
to make a point. That's the number two. So that's O. It is. I'm sorry. Number two. O, o to number two. SL.com. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Yeah. O number yeah. two. Okay. SL.com. Um, and you'll see all of our resources on there, all of our personnel, and love to have you visit there. Uh, you'll be able to contact me. My contact information's on there. Um, contact me anytime if there's anything I can do for anyone, even if it's just, you know, connect you to resources or point you in a direction that would help you. Um, more than welcome. I'm going to be more than happy to do that for, for anyone. So, Well, I think you've done an amazing job, and I can say that you have definitely made a 180-degree turnaround since where you were back in 2012 or 2010 from, yes, as a police have. officer. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, yeah, we a, definitely have. I have, and I you know I'm proud to say that. And I, and I can tell you, uh, it, it, philosophy of policing is changing. We're teaching um, recruits in the academy. Um, before I left, I was on the MPTC, Municipal Police Training Committee, involved in, in identifying in-service training each year for reserve office, for uh, in-service, for veteran officers, as well as recruit officers in the academy. And everyone coming out of the academy now is trained in the use of Narcan, it's a complete different philosophy of policing. Uh, you know, we realize we're more of a guardian than a warrior. We're out there. We're part of the community, and we want to act that way and, pro and provide those services. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm proud of the policing I see in this area. I know throughout the country there's been some uh, obvious uh, tragedies through policing that I wouldn't even try to support. I think that it clearly shows that there are people in policing that don't belong there. And they shouldn't be there and they should be prosecuted to the fullest uh, for their actions. But unfortunately, that does affect us and impact other officers. But I guess I'll just end with saying that, you know, 99.9% .9 of these police officers out there are there for the right reasons. Uh, they care. And, um, you know, don't paint a wide brush. That's, that's what I would say. Right. Well, I would say we're very fortunate with the police departments we have in Massachusetts. I think we're we're steps ahead of the rest of the country. And I'd say Rhode Island, too. There's, I, I'm familiar with a lot of departments in Rhode Island. And between the two states, I think we've got the best deal going. Yeah, um, and we're very fortunate to have people like you who were the chief of police and, and directing people and getting these programs started and getting them off the ground. Because you are saving lives no matter how you look at it. You're definitely saving lives. Well, and thanks, Tony. We, I really appreciate just that. Just keep it going. Yeah. That's yes. so. We've been talking to uh, Michael Buteri, who is the Vice President of Business Development of O2SL and QRT National. And we really want to thank Michael for his time today, because I know he's got an enormous schedule covering many states. And we really appreciate that we finally caught up to you. That's That was the key. And we really appreciate all the work you do. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate that. I really appreciate your time as well. Thank you very much. Okay, and this is the Tony LeGrecker, and you've been listening to The Courage to Hope with Michael Buteri, and as you can tell, he brings a lot of hope to the table, and it took a lot of courage to start these two companies to go on a national level. That's it's quite amazing. So again, courage to hope in action, and I want to thank you for listening today. Thank you.